from Psalm 113, we read, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Father, we're thankful for the truth that you are the one who is the creator of it all, the master and maker of the universe. And yet, Father, we as individuals are of great eternal concern to you, so much so that Christ came to die that we might have life, not only here abundantly, but eternally. And so, Father, we come in the faith that you are here this morning and that you want to speak to us individually here this morning. And so we submit to you. We ask that your spirit will be our true teacher, that he will be the one that will guide us in our understanding and application of the truth of the word. Lord, bless each one in this room. Minister to each heart. And Father, as the word is taught in the many classes today in the various parts of this building, we ask that you will be powerfully present. And in the service, which is concurrent, we ask that your name will be uplifted and exalted. And we ask that as the name of God is proclaimed uh, across this country and around the world on this your day, that many will be brought into your kingdom and others will be reaffirmed in their faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to Joshua chapter 2, begin reading with verse 1. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Well, after 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, the hour of, of, of the invasion had come. Uh, Canaan had been that distant land that was, was in their dreams and, and was in the program, but was not a reality yet. But now this was about to take place. But we have to understand that Joshua was a good general. Joshua was the kind of general who wanted to know what kind of land he was entering. He didn't want to lead the army blindly into what could be a trap. And so he sent spies before him, these two men, uh, soldiers undoubtedly, were sent to spy out the land as a preface to the invasion. These two men had to go from the camp, get across the swollen Jordan River, and then make it to the city of Jericho. The distance, as we have noted before, was about 15 miles. So it probably took all day for them to make the journey, and so they passed through the gates of Jericho, probably near dusk, to enter into the city. But as they passed through the city gates, now you remember if you're familiar with Old Testament scripture, that the city gates were a pretty busy place. 
at the city gates, there were usually markets. At the city gates, there were judges. And, and, and so there was quite a bit of business there. And it could be that they just hoped to squeeze through rather inconspicuously in the busyness uh, around the gate. But apparently someone spotted them and was suspicious about them. And uh, that person or persons followed them to the house of Rahab. Last week, we arrived at this point, and I asked the question, which ended the class, and that was, why in the world would these Hebrew spies, servants of the living God, go to the house of a harlot? I mean, there were a lot of houses in Jericho. Why did they go to the house of a harlot? Well, of course, it could be that being a harlot, Jericho, or that is Rahab, was the only person willing to accept two strangers into her house. This is probably not an unfamiliar occurrence for her. Also, it's very possible that the spies thought that going to the house of a harlot would be less conspicuous, would create less suspicion because people would say, oh, well, that's what they're here for, you know, and, and we understand that. And that it would not cause people to wonder who these people were and why they were there. Some commentators believe that it's possible that Rahab was actually running an inn and that her prostitution was sort of a side uh, means of income associated with the running of an inn. But whatever the case, whatever the case, whatever went through the minds of the spies, whatever were the circumstances of how they got from the gate to the house and how did they know where the house was, I mean, you could ask all kinds of questions. No matter what we think about those things, they ended up at the house of the only person in that entire city whose heart was open to the God of Israel. Now, who led them there? It, it wasn't a shot in the dark. It wasn't throwing a dart at a city map and going there. It, it, it wasn't that they accidentally arrived there. It was because God led them to that very location. However he did it, God led them to that very location to save the two Israelite spies, and of course in the long run to save her life and that of her family, Rahab misled the officers who came and asked about these two spies who had come to her house. And she sent them on a wild goose chase all the way down to the Jordan River. In Hebrews 11 we read these words, Rahab had welcomed the spies in Shalom in peace. Rahab had welcomed the, the spies in peace. So she knew who these men were. We do not know the degree to which this woman had already been transformed. We do not know whether she had left her vile lifestyle and repented of her sin. Would she even know that she needed to do that? I mean, she was a Canaanitess. And she's heard the word of the Lord, and she's heard of the great miracles, but does she know the Ten Commandments? No. Does she understand the relationship between God and herself? Probably not. But she had come to fear the God of Israel. I think in the true sense of that word, in, in, in the sense that we first comes to our mind, I mean, she was afraid of the God of Israel. And that was in the process also establishing a measure of faith in her heart. She had heard of his great miracles, and she'd come to believe that this one is the one true God because none of our gods can do what he's done. None of our gods can do what he has done. 
she apparently came to believe that God intended to conquer Canaan and give it to Israel. And therefore, the wisdom in this whole situation would be to cooperate with that rather than to resist it and probably die with the rest because she knew what had happened to the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan River. So when these two men came, she quickly discovered who they were. However she discovered that, she knew who these men were. And she also knew that by hiding them, she was committing treason against her own country. But she was acting upon a faith that had begun to build in her heart. A faith that if she protected the spies that belonged to the Israelite nation, that the God of Israel would then, I suppose to put it crassly, owe her one, you might say. She, she came to believe that if she protected them, that God would protect her. Whatever, you know, in, in whatever infantile form this faith was, however embryonic it was, it was enough to cause her to act. That was well-placed faith because it turned out to be exactly that way. The immaturity of her faith, of course, is revealed in the, in, in, in the means by which she protected the spies. How did she protect the spies? Well, again, we have to remember, she was raised in the Canaanite culture. The Canaanite culture was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods, the principal gods being the gods of fertility, which involved all the things that are associated with fertility gods. And, and so it was a very fleshly, materialistic culture whose worship involved appeasing of the various gods that were a threat to your life. And so what did she know about lying or that that was not what would please God, that, that God was not honored in telling a lie? She had not been taught the lifestyle of faith. How could she? She had no contact with Israel before these two men came. She only had heard of the God of Israel. And God himself was building faith in her heart with, without even any human contact about it in the, in the early months and weeks of this transformation. So when she was confronted by these royal officers, you know, the king had been told, the king of Jericho, Jericho was a, apparently a city-state in and of itself, and the whole plain around there was ruled by the king of Jericho, who was in an association with other Canaanite kings. And, and so he sent royal officers to the house to arrest these spies and bring them back, of course, for interrogation. And so when the royal officer said, two spies were seen, or two men were seen coming into your house, she does not deny that. She doesn't say, oh, no, nobody came to my house. She says, yes, two men did come to her house that evening. But then she immediately launches into two falsehoods. Now again, telling a lie is a faithless act. But we have to be careful, and, and I'll point this out as I read from a couple of statements made by commentators, that we don't lean too heavily on her for this because she was doing what, as far as she knew, was what she had to do at this point in the immaturity of her faith. First of all, she says to the two royal officers, well, yes, two men came here, but I have no clue where they came from or who they were. She had no idea they were spies, she was saying, of course. Now, they believed her. Why would they believe her? Well, because she was a harlot. And they, they had no problem with believing that she wouldn't care who they were as long as they paid for what they came for. 
Secondly, she told them that the men left just before it was time to close the city gates, implying that somehow they squeezed out through the gates, you know, before they were shut, and, and took off into the countryside as it got dark. Now this too was believed by the royal officers because if the men had received what they came to her for, they would have no reason to stay, especially since they would have been, it would have been dangerous for them to remain in this city. So the royal officers swallowed everything hook, line, and sinker. They didn't even ask to go into her house to look around. Now we have to understand that no matter what her methods were, God was in this. God was protecting his two spies. Rehob added credibility to these two statements that she made by pretending surprise and concern. Oh no, there were spies? I didn't know that. Whoa. And, and then she excitedly urged the officers, oh, quick, 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 if you go down this way and not that way, you'll catch them before they get to the Jordan. I mean, I mean she made it believable. And they thought, wow, I mean, this gal's got to be telling the truth because she wouldn't get so excited. Uh, and, and, and I mean, she, was, she, she had gone, done great in Hollywood or in Broadway. <laughs> she urged them to hurry. And if they hurried, they might be able to catch the men before they made it to the Jordan River and got across to the other, other side where they would escape. And, and the men felt the urgency of this and they thought, wow, we better do that. And so they took off in pursuit of these very elusive spies running in exactly the opposite direction of where the spies were. Now, Kyle and Delich, who produced one of the massive commentaries and their, their 19th century German commentators, in, in their commentary in this passage, express what I think is considerable insight. They say, the falsehood by which Rahab sought not only to avert all suspicion from herself of any conspiracy with the Israelite men who had enter, entered her house, but to prevent any further search for them in her house and to frustrate the attempt to arrest them is not to be justified as a lie of necessity told for good, good purpose. They go on to say, for a lie is always sin. Therefore, even if Rahab was not actuated at all by the desire to save herself and her family from destruction, and the motive from which she acted had been it, had at its roots in her had its roots in her faith in the living God, so that what she did for the spies and therefore for the cause of the Lord was counted to her for righteousness, yet the course which she adopted was a sin of weakness, which was forgiven her in mercy because of her faith. And then I, I noted down at the bottom, the commentators had uh, put a little footnote from what John Calvin had said about this. And he said, although God wished the spies to be delivered, he did not sanction their being protected by a lie. He didn't sanction it, but he did use it to accomplish his purpose. Well, she wasn't exactly sure, of course, that the men would believe her at the door and not enter her house. So she had kind of, you know, taken care of things and she had hidden the spies under piles of flax up on the roof. Now, in other contexts, you probably have become aware of the fact that in the Middle Eastern world, particularly in the Levant, it was very common to build flat roof houses and to build those roofs with a parapet around them. In fact, if you didn't, you could be liable <laughs> for damages. And, and then to use the roof for many kinds of activities. Often on a warm night, you went up and slept on the roof. It was better than sleeping down inside. 
And during the day, people would work there in the, if there was shade. Often, if you go to that part of the world, you know that they grow grapevines that run up the side and then spread out kind of an awning over an open part of a roof. We saw a lot of this in Turkey uh, this uh, past uh, June. And it was just amazing. You know, these, you have this, this uh, vine, and it, it has a trunk this big around, running up two or three floors. And then spreading out, no leaves, no branches anywhere till you get to the very top. And then all this leafy stuff and, and grapes hanging from it on the roof of the building. And so this was a very common thing that uh, occurred in the Near East. And so to anything you wanted dry, to dry, you spread it out on the roof because two things. If the wind came along, it was less likely to blow it away because you have a parapet around the edge of the roof. And, and secondly, it's a little more secure. Uh, drying it on the roof than out in your yard where somebody else might walk off with it. And so she's got all these branches, these stalks of flax. They're spreading out on the roof to be dried. And so she hid these men under these stalks of flax. It probably wasn't a very comfortable place for these guys, you know, all this flax hanging in your face. But anyway, here, here they were. Underneath. So she had to have quite a pile. You know, it could have been just six stalks of flax. She had to have quite a mound of them uh, to hide two men under this pile of flax. Flax stalks were commonly spread on the roof to dry to prepare them so that the fibers could be separated from the pith of the, of the stalk. One of the oldest fibers known to man is flax. Flax was widely used in the ancient Near East. The cloth made from flax could be made anywhere from a relatively coarse form of cloth to a very fine form of cloth. Uh, the best was used to make what is known as fine linen. And fine linen could be made almost transparent, at least translucent. And it is frequently referred to in scripture. When they bleached it, it became dazzling white. And that particular form of cloth came to represent purity. And we probably are familiar, I trust, with passages such as the one in Revelation 19 having to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb, where it says, and it was given to her, that is the bride of Christ, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So fine linen was used symbolically in scripture for things having to do with heaven and purity. And angels came and appeared in fine linen, it, as, as it would seem to people as they saw them. So what we find here is that we, we find a little bit uh, of something else about the character of Rahab. She seems to have been an industrious woman. Obviously, she didn't have the flax up there just, just to have it up there. She apparently worked it and uh, used it to develop material that she could sell. And so it seems very probable that from the very beginning, her harlotry was more driven by financial need than it was by a lascivious character. And so when the word came to her about the miracles of the God of Israel, God was able to find a small opening there and to begin to work in the heart of this woman and to change her with as little information as she had to change this woman to the point that she was willing to accept these two spies and, and to become a person who was literally treasonous to her own people, endanger her own life on, on behalf of a God that she only knew by hearsay.
Let's read on in Joshua chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and will give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. No matter what this woman's occupation had been, it's quite obvious that Rahab was a very perceptive woman. Notice the first phrase of her statement in verse 9. I know that Yahweh has given you this land. I know that Yahweh has given you this land. It's not, I, I think it's possible he might, or there's a chance that you might. It's, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. I don't think it's necessarily that God had come down and, and given her that confidence directly. I think that confidence was given by God through the testimony of all those things that God had done for Israel and that she had heard about. Many Israelites didn't have that much confidence. I mean, the ones who had been led by God. And many of them didn't say, well, I know God is going to give us this land. I think some of them were still worried and concerned. And we talked about some of the questions uh, that uh, probably some of them had before they ever entered the land. After all, they had a bit of a checkered history, right? I mean, they had had an opportunity to enter land once before, and, and they had turned wholesale against it. I think that's one of the reasons why we're told in Jeremiah that the heart is desperately wicked. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Because we can know what is right and not do it. We can be committed to the God we serve and know what he's asking us to do and blatantly not do it because we still have a heart that has not been totally purified yet. It's in the process, and God is working to cleanse us, but we are not perfected until, as it were, we cross Jordan into eternity. In the meantime, we are still imperfect people. And Israel understood that, even though these men and women had, had gone through 39 years of purification after their failure, there was still doubt in the hearts of some that they would go ahead with it this time. One of the things you, one of the reasons I love to study history is that you discover through the course of the study of history that the needs of men and women are the same no matter what century or what millennia you're talking about. The only thing that changes is the environment, the technology. The rest of it's the same. That's one of the reasons I think why you wouldn't remember, but 
I don't either directly, but back at the end of the 19th and early beginning uh, part of the 20th century, <clears throat> there was a, a strong movement afoot in the Western world to, to believe in the evolutionary rise of man and, and that people are getting better and better every day. I mean, that even crept into the church. The social gospel. And the whole idea was that we are evolving to higher and higher level beings. Well, World War I threw a few doubts in the minds of some of those. The Depression furthered that. The World War II almost nailed the coffin shut. And then your Stalins and your Maos and your Hitlers helped to convince many others that mankind, if, if mankind's evolving, he definitely is, he may be physically, but he definitely is not spiritually and morally. And of course, we know that very truly today as we look around in, in our, quote, Christian society and, and we find the moral decay in which our society is bathing today. Confidence has to be in God. That's the only source of our confidence. We believe God, and we're told that in case of Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was accorded to him as righteousness. Noah believed God, and it was accorded to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And, and so we believe God, and our confidence is in him. But our confidence cannot be in man. And so the Israelites were not even as confident as this woman because this woman wasn't trusting in Israel. She was trusting in Israel's God. She didn't even know Israel. And then she gave them these spies a vital piece of information. She revealed the mental attitude of the Canaanites. They were terror-stricken. They were scared to death of the impending invasion by Israel. What is interesting about this passage is she refers to an event that occurred 230 miles away and 40 years before and, and says, we remember what God did in bringing Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea and our hearts have been melted within us ever since. <laughs> but she probably wasn't even alive when Israel crossed the Red Sea. And, and, and yet this word, I mean, can God faithfully get his word to whomever he chooses to get it to? He did to her. His word pro, you know, went out and, and however it was carried. No Israelites came to Canaan bringing the message. So how in the world did the message get to Canaan? Well, travelers going up and down the sea route between Egypt and, and Canaan. Dr. Wormer? That's a clue that if the uh, 12 had gone in at first there, that that's exactly what would have happened there. Uh, their hearts would have melted uh, way back then, based on what, what she said there. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, because that would have been even fresher. <laughs> it just happened. Of course, what had been reinforced to their minds more, freak, or more recently was the conquest of Transjordan, of the area just east of the Jordan. And, and she ref, refers to it here, the, the, the defeat of Og and the, the conquest of, of Bashan and Gilead, Sion, there, the two kings, Sion and Og and the fact that Israel had occupied that portion of the land. So that, that was a new, a new instance. And of course, what was going to further reinforce this would be when Israel crosses the flooded Jordan, God does the same thing that he did at the Red Sea. I mean, that ought to scared these people to the point where they decided to swim to Cyprus or something. But it didn't quite happen that way. The hearts of the Canaanites had melted within them, which basically meant they lost their confidence in their God's ability to provide for their security. 
they were insufficient to defend themselves and their gods were insufficient. That was the fear that was in their hearts. That is a hopeless situation. And they will fight out of desperation. That's how they will fight, out of desperation. I think it's really important to notice Rahab's powerful and enlightened testimony, particularly which we read in verse 11, where she says, and when we heard it, about Sion and Og and the conquest of Transjordan. When we heard it, our hearts, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. And notice what she says next. For Yahweh, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That reminds me of the testimony that um, Nebuchadnezzar made after he had eaten grass for seven years around, around the palace there in Babylon. And he came back and he sent a message to all of the land of Babylon. He said, you will worship the God of Israel because he is God. I learned it the hard way by chewing grass for seven years like a cow. My hair dragging on the ground and my nails becoming like an eagle's claws and stark naked. It must have been quite a sight out there on the palace grounds. But God transformed that man and God transformed Rahab. She understood a truth that Moses had been trying to pound into Israel months and years before, and which I think is probably most eloquently recorded in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, reading at verse 32. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has, God, has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. Those are the, basically the words she used. There is no other beside Him. Out of the heavens, He let you hear His voice to discipline you. On the earth, He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words from the midst of the fire. Because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance, inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. And those are almost exactly the same words that Rahab used. And Rahab had not read Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was not known by anybody outside of Israel because Moses had just penned it. And most of Israel hadn't even memorized it yet. And yet, these are the words, which of course reinforces our, our, our understanding of the inspiration of God on his word and in the hearts of his people. You know that when a person repeats scripture, in effect, that that's under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, if it's God-exalting. 
And you know that if they give you a word that is contrary to Scripture, that does not come from God. This is an important test that needs to be used relative to all expressions of Christian faith and those who claim to have faith and yet their words do not come in line with Scripture. This woman had opened her heart to God and he had planted in her heart belief and faith. He had planted it. Nobody talked her into it. God had planted it there. I, I think today we so often see people who go forward in a meeting and, quote, become converted and then later jettison the whole thing and some have interpreted that to mean that, you know, you can get saved today and lost tomorrow and saved the next day and lost the next day kind of uh, a theology when what we're talking about is a fact that God had not planted the faith in the heart of that person. It has to be God-implanted faith for it to be genuine and real and life-transforming. As far as we know, she had only what she had heard second-hand. I mean, she hadn't even heard these words from Moses or from Joshua or from any Israelite. She had only heard the word second-hand as an Egyptian told a traveling merchant from Mesopotamia who told somebody in Canaan who told somebody else and finally got to her ears. And yet she believed. That's a work of God's grace. Upon the basis of that limited knowledge, she believed God and that faith saved her. In Hebrews 11.35 we read, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, meaning the entire remaining population of Jericho, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. After she had welcomed the spies in peace. Why after? Well, I think James holds the key to understanding that. The epistle of James. James chapter 2 Let's read the last two verses of James chapter 2. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now the scripture is very, very clear to us that our righteous acts do not save us. Good works do not save us. And of course, most of us, if we were to have to defend that position, would turn to the second chapter of Ephesians. And we would read specifically the little phrase that says, by grace we have been saved through faith, not as a result of works, period. Now, probably some of you know that there has been a dispute down through time <clears throat> relative to whether James and Paul were at odds with one another on this issue. Even Martin Luther was uh, questioning the whole thing that James was saying. But we need to understand that James is not proclaiming salvation by works. James is simply saying that our works validate our faith. Our works validate our faith. And I think that's clear as we go back into that same passage in James, back to verse 21, where it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working in his, with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. 
because when had he received faith? He had received faith way back earlier in the book of Genesis. I mean, you go all the way back to the 22nd chapter where we tell about the, I mean, the 15th chapter where, where we read about the fact that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith, his salvation came in the 15th chapter. He offers Isaac in the 22nd chapter. So by offering Isaac, he was not earning salvation. He was simply validating the faith that God had implanted in his heart earlier. And that is what is happening here. After, after this woman, Rahab, has saved these two spies and protected them and given her speech to them about the God of Israel being the true God that validated the faith that was there, confirmed it as it were, and made it to be seen as genuine. Her life had been on the line because if the officers had called her bluff, searched the house and found the two spies, she could have been executed for treason. Probably would have been. But she took the opportunity to express her faith in God and to trust God to work it out for the salvation of herself and her home. So I think we find in, in Rahab a powerful lesson for us. And, and I want to say a little bit about what God did for her as a result of her obedience to him. But it's, it's going to take more time than I have, so I will uh, do that next week.